back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is, again, your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And I'm really pleased to be joined this week by Sister Mary Lynch. Sister Mary is a sister of St. Joseph and has been the rector of McGlynn Hall on campus for 16 years now. And so we're just going to hear about her life and a lot of her experiences here at the university. So, Sister Mary, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. We always like to begin with a bit of a background, a biography. Could you tell us a little bit about where you come from and where you grew up? I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a row home, which some people uh, don't even know what they are. <laughs> and my father was a physician, and uh, his office was in the front of our house. Okay. So it was a very different growing up. Um, I am the oldest of seven. The next five are boys, and my sister's the youngest. And we're probably the typical Catholic family, 20 to 24 months apart straight down the line. <laughs> I went to St. Anne's Catholic grade school, and the grade school was, all, all of our sisters were from the Sisters of St. Joseph. My mother was the third oldest of 10, and her youngest two sisters were Sisters of St. Joseph. Okay. So in some respects, I guess my vocation came from all of that, some of that. I, when I finished St. Anne's in eighth grade, I went to John W. Hallahan Catholic Girls High School, a diocesan high school in Philadelphia that was founded in the early 1900s as one of the earliest all-girls Catholic high schools in, the, I think, the country. And mm -hmm. I, when I was in my senior year there, it was the time to start looking at and thinking about what to do next. And between junior and senior year, I started thinking about college applications and then realized that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I approached my two aunts to see about entering the convent. They strongly encouraged me to wait a year, but I said to them that I didn't know what to do with myself for that year because everything I had was college prep right? <laughs> and that I really did want to go into the convent at that point. So finally, they, they agreed, and I went through the whole application process and entered the Sisters of St. Joseph in September of 1964 and had two, a postulate year and then novitiate time. When I was in grade school and in high school, I learned how to play the piano. Hmm. So in high school, I actually played the piano in the orchestra and for the glee club and any of the departments of the high school that had shows. You know, I played for the uh, home ec fashion shows, the French club performances, the Spanish <laughs> club performances, right. those kinds of things. And I, was, I also learned the organ. So I have the distinction of having played the organ at the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul in Philadelphia. Wow. <laughs> My dream was to play the organ at John Wanamaker's department store, but that never happened. <laughs> And then, so what happened was when I entered the community, I was, I came in as somebody who would play the piano. So I played the piano and the organ for all of our masses at the postulate and the novitiate. After the novitiate years, we went out teaching and I started teaching elementary school because 
one of the reasons I didn't want to wait till after college to enter is I did not want to teach high school. Hmm. So I knew if I had waited and finished college, I would be teaching high school and I wanted grade school. I see. So I went out to teach grade five in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Initially taught all of every single subject. And then um, at some point in that first year, when our one of our community supervisors came, she suggested, since we had four fifth grade classrooms, wow. that we divide up the subjects and only teach one or two, which would ease up our preparation. Mm-hmm. I also taught piano lessons there. I had the, the children's choir was the choir for church, all the church events. So I, I conducted that. And then from there, I was only there one year, and then I went to Norwood uh, Academy for all boys, and I was there only a year. (laughs) And then I was sent to, all the time I was a music sister, so then I was sent to Hillcrest Heights, Washington, D.C., and that was my third year in a row to be in a new environment. Yeah. And my mother asked me, what was I doing wrong? (laughs) Of course, it was never, you know, anybody else's fault but mine. And so I went to Hillcrest Heights to teach uh, fifth grade math and music. And then while I was there, I actually moved to eighth grade. I mean, there I had sixth grade and then I moved to eighth grade math. And pretty much from that point on, I did seventh and eighth grade math. Okay. Yeah, thank you. That's that's a really nice foundation for for the conversation. I'd like to take us back to that those times when you were really thinking about becoming a sister of St. Joseph as a young woman. Was that a common thing with some of your peers or did you have that sense of I'm I'm really doing something different than most of my friends are doing? It was pretty much a common thing. In our high school, we had eight different congregations of sisters. They called them uh, union faculties. Okay. And at that time in the early 60s, every one of those orders had retreat days and would invite the girls from the high schools that they taught in that they thought might have a vocation to come out for their retreat days. So I got invited to a lot of retreat days. And usually the, the I guess like the carrot that they held out to us yeah. was we would be able to meet with the postulants and novices of that congregation, most of whom we knew, a I lot see. of whom we sure, didn't know. Sure, sure. A few years ahead of you, right. yeah. When I entered, I entered with 98, Wow. which were huge groups. A wow. couple of the groups ahead of me had 100 and 105. Wow. Picture Philadelphia row homes where on a single street you could have 40, 50 or more households. Yeah, Big families, all going to Catholic grade schools, all going to Catholic high schools. I mean, at that time, they were pretty much free. Yeah. And a lot of vocations came out of that time slot Mm -hmm. for all those congregations. Mm -hmm. Sister Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Franciscan Sisters, and the Mercy Sisters. Okay. So it wasn't unusual. And then for you, of course, there was this sense of have some peer, a lot of peers who are doing this, but... What was attractive about it to you personally that you thought, I think this really is the lifestyle that would fit my own gifts well? At that time, I think my primary reason that I was aware of for entering the congregation was to teach. Mm -hmm. I loved being a teacher. I I thought I would love being a teacher, and that's what I wanted to do. I think as 
There is also the religious component because I can remember when I would be at Mass in our high school auditorium that I used to sing some of the popular songs that were romantic songs to God. Mm, sure. You know, so like they they were some of the things that, or I would imagine God singing them to me. Yeah. yeah. So there really was a spiritual component to the, the attraction. As I think back on it, initially I thought maybe it was just the desire to teach mm. and to teach in that particular role as a religious. Yeah. So. And for those who might not be aware, what is the particular charism or apostolate of the Sisters of St. Joseph as opposed to the many other options that you had? At that time, we were absolutely primarily teachers. We had hundreds of schools pretty much around the beltways of 95. Hmm. So we were in North Jersey. We were in South Jersey. We were in Philadelphia. We were in Harrisburg. We were down in the Maryland area, the Washington, D.C. area, and we had a few places in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And all of it was elementary schools. Yeah. We did have sisters in the Catholic high schools in some of those, in some of the dioceses in the area. And we do have our own college, Chestnut Hill College. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty much, you know, what you expected, what I expected to do the rest of my life. Yeah. Teach. Yeah. Uh, in recent years, though, especially since the Vatican Council, mm -hmm. we've branched out to a lot of different ministries, therefore allowing me to be here right. in this capacity. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, the early 60s, you're right in the midst of Vatican II. What things did you see kind of happen over the course of your formation that where you started to realize the trajectory of what you were doing, you know, might change over the, over time? When I was in the in the high the Catholic grade schools and doing the the, the church music, um, I started to started to realize that in some ways I was responsible for preparing all these liturgies. Right. And it was the blind leading the blind. <laughs> so in seventy um, seven, I it took me twelve years to finish my bachelor's degree. Okay. Because it was all part time. Right. You're quite busy. <laughs> yes. I, I taught, I, most of the time my teaching was outside of the Philadelphia area. The, our college had Saturday school for all of our sisters, but I was never in an area for the most part where I could travel to that. So everything was part-time, so it took me forever. But I finally finished in 76. 77, I applied and started here at Notre Dame for a master's degree in liturgical studies. Mm -hmm. And... That was kind of the beginning of my thinking, maybe I could do something else besides teach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was still teaching. I was uh, in North Carolina at the time in High Point. One of the priests from that area was also studying here, and he was in charge of the Newman Center in Chapel Hill at UNC. And so shortly after we were here and I finished, he called me up to see if I would be interested in doing campus ministry at Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, every time I thought I saw something that might be a, a direction I could take, this sister who was kind of the administrator I, I spoke to yeah. would always say, no, I don't think that's the right one. Okay. But when I mentioned this one, she said, oh, yeah, go for it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I applied and got that position. I was in campus ministry at Chapel Hill for four years. And then there were priest changes and all that kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. 
And so I met here at one of the summer conferences, the priest who was being newly assigned to campus ministry at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. Okay. So we talked, and then he offered me a position there because he wanted a woman on staff. Mm -hmm. So then I went to North Carolina State for four years. My third year there, no, my fourth year there, he died of suddenly of a heart attack. Oh, my. And I knew I, I couldn't stay yeah. beyond that. And it was getting more difficult for the diocese to find a priest who would come and, and take over because Father Joe McNamara and I had pretty much functioned as an equal team. Mm-hmm. And at that time, not a whole lot of women religious were in that position. Right, yeah. You know, so... I guess because I was so established and so settled there, it was difficult for an, a priest to think he could come in and take over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I finally decided the best thing for me was to leave. Okay. So I went to Princeton University for campus ministry for two years. Again, there was a priest change uh, in the director, and I thought, I'm going through this again. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and taught for four years at our all-girls academy right outside of Philadelphia in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I taught theology, religion there, and then did some campus ministry there. And then became the liturgist for the congregation in charge of all the major liturgy events and Sunday Mass every week. Right. I was formation director for the women who first entered the community. And then when there were no more candidates on the horizon, I decided I needed to move on. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I became aware of openings here for rectors. Okay. I have five nephews and a niece who graduated from here. One nephew was going into his senior year and my niece was going into her junior year. Mm -hmm. And at Thanksgiving, I asked them, did they think it would be a good fit and would they'd be upset if I <laughs> came here as a rector. Yeah. They both agreed, no, it'd be great, go for it. We think you'd do a good job. So that's when I applied here. And that's set the ball rolling for this being my 16th year. Yeah, which, you know, you've had so many experiences doing different things, but, but you've stayed here a long time. So I do, we will, we will get into that. I want to go back to this turn towards campus ministry. There's some foreshadowing there for you that you were working with the college population and, and then, you know, would come here eventually and work for a while with a college population. What was it about campus ministry that that fed you as, as a minister, as well as what did you think that you had to, to give to that college age population? I really enjoyed working with them. I, I enjoyed watching their leadership skills develop how they would grow and mature over the course of the time that I had known them, especially like when you're there the fourth year and you could see from freshman year to senior year. I also, when I got to Princeton, started thinking along the lines of spiritual direction. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was able to commute from Princeton to our college and 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 get a master's degree in holistic spirituality and spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. So that's what started me down that path mm-hmm. of doing spiritual direction. I continued that and did that while I was teaching high school. I, I was doing spiritual direction as well. 
And then even when I came here, my second year here, because at that time they usually said, leave the new rectors alone for a year until they get their right. you know, feet it's a on big the job and get established. <laughs> so my second year, I was, well, I had been told in my first year by Father Dick Warner mm-hmm. that I was going to be with campus. He wanted me with campus ministry. Sure. So then I started here also doing campus ministry work. Yeah. Well, and I, I do know you from your, your background here as a spiritual director. For those who might not be as familiar with that practice in the church, could you give us a brief explanation of what that is and why it was both important in your own life as a religious sister, but something that you've wanted to, to give to other people in your ministry? What started happening was people would come to talk to me about their own spiritual journey in the campus ministry places where I was. And I felt again that uh, sense of the blind leading the blind. (laughs) So that's why I thought, let's get some education in this. And spiritual direction is basically an opportunity to talk to somebody who listens to you and what's going on in your life, not just your prayer life, but your whole life, but definitely your prayer life and tries to hear where God is in your life, Mm -hmm. primarily to ask questions that might help the individual see something or become aware of something that maybe they weren't aware of. Mm -hmm. It's not a kind of teaching. It's not teaching. It's, It's absolutely listening. And most of the time we say God's the director. And I'm, as spiritual director, the facilitator between God and the directee, the person coming to me. Mm -hmm. Is that something that was common with your community, or has that become more popular over the course of your time in religious life? We were among, I think, one of the first congregations in the Philadelphia area to send people off to become spiritual directors. Mm -hmm and to actually start a spirituality center where we had trained spiritual directors on staff that people could come to. Mm-hmm. We have a retreat house on the, uh, in Cape May Point, New Jersey, which is on the very southern tip of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It can house somewhere in the vicinity of 150 people. And we usually have um, what we call directed retreats where you meet one-on-one with a spiritual director. And... Oftentimes, anywhere from maybe like 16 to 18 directors meeting with four or five people over the course of either six to eight days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was, I have been doing, directed my retreats myself for quite a number of years and valued that in my life. And therefore, that was another impetus to the spiritual direction education Mm -hmm. to be able to offer that to people as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a tremendous gift that people aren't always aware of. They know about counseling, they know about the sacrament of confession, but this is it's not either of those things. It's right. it's something unique that I think is really helpful to people, especially as they're encountering moments of discernment or crisis. Right. To have that foundation of spiritual direction, I think is a is a real guiding light. Has that been your experience as yes. well? Yes, definitely. And it gives people the opportunity. Sometimes they feel like they want they want some kind of a real relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And that's what it does. It encourages that and it supports that. Mm-hmm. And it also helps people 
develop a pattern of prayer in their life on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I often say to the students, you know, I don't expect them to find 15 to 30 minutes a day with their schedules. Mm -hmm. But if they can give themselves 15 minutes a day, every a couple of days a week, that that's that's the that what they need to be able to get in touch with that deepest part of who they are and help them discern when they're making decisions. Mm -hmm. Because these students especially are, most of us are, we're making choices and decisions between two goods. Yep. And that's really hard. So how do you know when you look at two options, which is the right one for you at this point in your life? Mm -hmm. And that's some of what spiritual direction can help people get in the practice of recognizing or discovering or learning for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful and encouraging. Something, you know, encouragement for people to take advantage of that if, if that's available to them. So this decision to come to Notre Dame, if you think back to that time, what did you understand about the role of being a rector before you started? And then what did you learn as you lived that life? Okay. When I was in campus ministry, I always felt there was had to be a better way to get in touch with students. Because in campus ministry and in state-run universities, you put out your information and you hope they came to you. Mm -hmm. Whereas I thought, wow, actually living in the, an apartment in the building with them, yeah, this would be great. You know, like you're right there <laughs> among them. So it would be a big help and a good way to get in touch with them. I don't know how, how much I was aware of what all it would involve. I did, wasn't an undergrad here at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. So... I wasn't aware of that. But as I came to understand what Notre Dame was about and the Holy Cross charism of community building, that is absolutely who we are about, who we are as Sisters of St. Joseph. Yeah, yeah. And so that whole dynamic of building community for me was just a powerful idea. Mm -hmm. And to be able to walk with these young people, be in the, I think these are the four years of the most growth and maturity up to this point in their life. Yeah. And maybe ever. I yeah. don't know. Mm -hmm. But to see them come in at 18 and watch them grow and develop into just incredible young people and in my building, young women mm -hmm. at graduation is, is just a, a, a treat and a pleasure and an awesome opportunity to just walk the journey with them. Yeah. It's such a beautiful thing to, it's almost like we get to live vicariously through some of their accomplishments. And, you know, we realize we can't do everything, but we see them flourishing and finding their vocations and going out and, and, and doing good in the world. And it's, it's a blessing, I think, just to be a part of it. So I'm sure that's uh, yes. probably been your experience right. many times over. Many times over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even the whole process of choosing RAs. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're coming from the pool of people who started here as freshmen. Yeah. <laughs> and then to watch them get to the level where they want to give back. And then working with the staff. I love working with the staff. Mm -hmm. Getting to know them on an even deeper level. Letting them get to know me on a deeper level. Yeah. When this building is full, there are 272 undergrads in the building. Uh -huh. I can't get to know all of those. That's sure. impossible. Sure. So I count on the seven RAs that we choose to be the people who really build community mm -hmm. and to see that happening and to watch how they do that and to walk along the journey with them of doing that is just really a, an amazing 
opportunity and, and ministry as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I think it's somewhat amusing because people might think you were crazy for even thinking this would be a <laughs> enjoyable thing to do to live with this many women, you know, for, for most of the year when you started. But, you know, I could even hear in your voice that it's still life-giving to you. So what do you think it is about this environment that despite the numbers and college schedule and hours that that still is life-giving to you? I have no idea. <laughs> the people in my congregation think I'm crazy. Right. right? And I am 74 years old. Uh-huh. And at this point in my life, as far as my congregation is concerned, I don't need to have any kind of a job at all. Okay. I don't need to be bringing in any type kind of, of stipend, mm-hmm. full part. Not, I could be doing nothing. Yeah. But I, I, I'm not ready for that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not ready to not be here mm-hmm. and to, to not be able to connect with these young women. When I was teaching grade school, I also taught piano lessons after school. And I reached a point where... I felt like I was being irritable with the students, and I didn't want them to think that that's what piano lessons were about. Mm-hmm. So I stopped and turned all my students over to another person. My hope is that if I get to that point here, I'll recognize it the same mm-hmm. as I did then. Mm-hmm. And if I am doing more harm than good, that will definitely be my cue to say, okay, this is it. Mm-hmm. I need to move on. Or if I get to the point where I feel like I'm not relating to them, mm-hmm. that I'm not understanding them, I'm not connecting with them, that will be my sign to say, okay, I, I need to not do this anymore. Yeah. Well, I, and I did want to touch on this point that, you know, when you first started out, you were part of this community. Uh, there were a lot of other sisters around you. What has it been like to not be as close to the community being out there a few states away, if you will, at Notre Dame, how how do you still stay connected to your religious family? Up until COVID, I went back (laughs) every Christmas for at least probably close to two weeks. I've gone back every summer. I do retreat work at our retreat house every summer. For a number of years, I helped direct the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. So I would be at our retreat house for a good 34 days with our sisters. I stay at the mother house when I go back because I have a very good friend who lives there. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much connected in through that. I usually would go back to Philadelphia either fall break or spring break, one of those. And so that's how I've stayed connected. And it's been enough for me. I don't have the need for a major social life. <laughs> so even all of this COVID business of, you know, not being able to socialize well hasn't been hard for me. I am definitely an introvert. Okay. So it hasn't been that difficult. Mm-hmm. And I do, you know, I, I connect through phone calls and things like that. We haven't done much with FaceTime or Zoom, even though everybody knows how to do it. It's, right. not, it's not the issue. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do stay connected that way. That's good. No, that's yeah. that's great to hear uh, that it's still, you can receive what you need from the community, but also be really representative of your, of your community to so many here. You've been at Notre Dame for a while now, and you mentioned you always want to ensure that you're connecting with students. 
What do you think has been consistent with students that you've seen over your time, even thinking back to college campus ministries at these other places? And what are some of the challenges that you see now that maybe weren't as prominent in earlier years? I guess the consistent thing has been the the time of maturity and growth with them over the four years, whether it was back in the 80s, you know, at Carolina or North Carolina State, or whether it's here. I think the social demands outside of here have changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Even when I first came here, there was no big deal about cell phones. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's only, you know, let's say 15 full years ago. And now... I came with a cell phone, which I'd never had before, because I figured I'd need one. But, you know, it's texting, it's all kinds of social media. There's so many distractions, I think, for them. And I I think that's hard. I think that's hard on Mm -hmm. them. And I guess the, the, the need to be accepted... That's been pretty typical, though, all the years with, especially the first year students, trying mm-hmm. to figure out who they are. And I think one of the hardest things for them is figuring out how to make friends. Because as little kids, you just do it naturally and nobody think they don't think twice about it. Mm-hmm. But the older they get, the more they think about it and the more stressed out they get about it. When I first came here, probably there were more things along the lines of eating disorders. Okay. Now, I feel like it's a lot more of anxiety levels, greater. And, and, um, you know, I wonder if that's part of all this social media, Mm -hmm. that they're they're more anxious about stuff. Yeah, I think it it is an ongoing challenge for, for all of us, right? How we incorporate technology well into our lives, how we represent ourselves online versus real life, so to speak, in person. As you have seen some of your resident assistants, your RAs, grow into these young women who are leaders in the community, how have you seen them navigate some of these waters well that might provide a path for some of their younger peers? I think by the time they're RAs, they're um, comfortable with themselves and who they are and who they're becoming. They don't feel the pressure to go to parties and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. they have established their group of friends. Sometimes those groups don't get established till the end even of sophomore year. Mm-hmm. You know, freshmen think that they've found their best friend for the rest of their life, which is often not the case. <laughs> but they've figured out who the friends are by senior year that they want to stay in touch with after they graduate. And they've figured out how to balance the academic demands, the leadership role in the hall with social life. One of the challenges for them sometimes can be their friends who live off campus who don't understand why they can't or won't do certain things or attend certain gatherings. Mm -hmm. That can be a challenge for them, and they struggle with that. But my experience is that they've handled it very well, the young women I've worked with. That's great to hear. There's certainly, it's it's rare in college residential life to only have senior RAs, but I think that's a a real cornerstone of of the residential model here that they yes. become 
such prominent leaders in the community and as you said help you do your job well right the interesting thing is most of them will when you ask them in in, in the interview process why would you want to be an ra nine times out of ten they name their are their freshman ra yeah which is fascinating mm-hmm. you know and that, that when they see that what how that person has functioned and all that that person has done then that their thought is i want to do the same thing mm-hmm. i want to be able to do the same thing mm-hmm. It connects well to the theme of this podcast, that there are moral exemplars out there. There are people that we look up to. So I do want to ask you about that later on. What about staying in touch with some of these students as they have graduated? Have you been able to keep some of those relationships alive and see see your former residents flourish as they get on in life? Uh, Some I have, and some I feel bad that I haven't been able to. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's sad occasions that bring you together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the fun occasions when they come back for football games. Yeah. The hard part here in McGlynn is we're so far away from the tailgating scenes. Oh, right. You have to make a special effort to come all the way over here to stop in it at this hall. It's a pilgrimage, yeah. Yeah, That's right. You know, they always tell me, oh, we'll be back, we'll be back. The same way with the ones who move off campus as seniors. Yeah. They keep. They always tell me they'll come back, they'll come back. They rarely do because it's, as you say, it's a, it's a, it's a journey, it's an yeah. expedition to get yourself together and come this far. Because <laughs> we are on the outskirts. I always tease the students from Granger that come to McGlynn that this is as far away from home as they could get them. <laughs> Yeah, but I enjoy it when they come back. Yeah. You know, and to meet their husbands and, you know, see them when they bring back their children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wonderful to see that. That's really neat. For us, pre COVID, getting to have reunion each year and, and seeing people come back and kind of see them reconnect to, as you said, these important, this is such an important time in their life that has really meant a lot for what their life becomes afterwards. And it's uh, it's neat to see that. If you don't mind, I, I would like to yeah, get into something that happened recently in your life. You went through a, a period of illness. Would you tell us about that and, and some of the lessons that, that that brought to you? In June of 2018, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I uh, had surgery to remove part of my colon and then began chemotherapy, I guess, in August, right shortly before they came back. Mm-hmm. I was on slow drip chemo, which was like um, 48 hours with a fanny pack that would slowly drip the chemo into my system. Mm-hmm. And that would be every other week, provided my white count was high enough. Okay. I ended up having nine of those treatments, ended actually Christmas Day was the last huh. one. I had planned to stay here and had planned to have that then, so I thought I couldn't go anywhere. So that was my last of twenty eight in 2018. The unbelievable thing was the response of the women here. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely wonderful, and they would come in every evening and get my little plastic containers from me and go over to the dining hall and get me dinner. I could manage breakfast and lunch because I could keep an eye on the the crowds. Mm -hmm. But dinner was another challenge. So they would always go over and get me dinner and bring it back. 
And the the women who worked over at the dining hall knew that this is who they were, and they would just say, we're coming for Sister Mary, absolutely fine. Yeah. You know, so, and then what they did was actually two freshmen that year, in the first week of classes, when they saw my fanny pack, went to one of the, their, to their RA and suggested that in solidarity with me, they should all get fanny packs. <laughs> so they ordered these green fanny packs that had a shamrock on it, because that's who we are, the shamrocks. Right. And one of the, the scripture passages that I have lived by and have challenged them to live by is Micah, this is what Yahweh asks of you, only this, to act justly, love tenderly, and walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. And they took the shamrock on the fanny pack and on the three petals had act justly, love tenderly, walk humbly. Mm. And one Sunday night at our mass, during that fall semester, I sat in the sacristy for mass because I couldn't be out among all of them. And so one Sunday at mass, at the end, at the announcement time, they one of them, the assistant rector got up and spoke and said something. And the next thing you know, they all lifted up their sweatshirts and everything and we're all wearing these green fanny packs. Oh, wow. And I almost lost it. <laughs> it was a real challenge. Yeah. The best part of it was that my chemo pack actually fit in it. So I was able to wear that fanny pack from then on. Oh, great. Instead of the big blue horsey one they had given me at the uh, oncologist. Yeah. And prior to that point, had you ever been through a period of illness like that or... No, never. Okay. And thankfully, you're you're doing better now. Mm -hmm. Thinking back on that time, were were there any moments of enlightenment or understanding that only came to you because you were suffering through something like that that you think can help you, you know, as you minister to other people? I guess the first thing was I don't ever really have a point where I said to myself, why me? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have that feeling. There were times when I was scared, for sure. There were times when I would find myself praying that the chemo would work mm-hmm. and then wondering what would happen if it didn't. But I, th- I think the support of so many people was the impetus that got me through it and just made me so grateful for the, the people here. Mm. Initially, my congregation representative was saying I should come back to Philadelphia. And I was like, no, Hmm. because first of all, my health insurance is with Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) Everything would have been out of network. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, I I just knew I wasn't, I just had this sense that I wasn't going to need to do that. Hmm. I was tired at times, but I I rarely was nauseous. I was able to do most of what I I do. Um, I didn't always do rounds you know, walk of the whole building, depending on how I felt mm-hmm. you know, when I was on duty. But I feel like I was able to pretty much keep things going, you know, the way I should have. Yeah. And I guess it, it helped me really appreciate the power of prayer because of all the people who said they were praying for me. And at the end of the nine treatments, I've been doing six-month checkups ever since, and they've all been clear and negative. Everything's been fine. And again, you know, that just that whole sense of the power of prayer. And I guess God's not done with me yet. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> or, he doesn't, great. or God doesn't want me yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we are, we join in prayers of gratitude that, that you're doing well. 
we've made mention of the pandemic. I think we're all going through a really unique time, a time that we haven't gone through before in, in our lifetimes. What do you think are some of the lessons of the pandemic that we can recognize now, but also take with us when God willing, this, this all ends? One of the things that I've been saying to the students is they don't want to go home for lots of reasons. And they want to stay here and they want to have classes here. A couple of them even mentioned that they'd rather be here doing online classes than home doing online Mm -hmm. classes. Mm -hmm. However, what I have also been saying to them is I see what this is asking of us and them to really follow the, the policies and comply with everything that's been set in place because it's a social justice issue. Mm. If they go home, the people who will be let go of their jobs will be the housekeepers, the dining hall people, the mail distributors, all those folks who work directly in the buildings that and that are connected to students. Mm-hmm. And how dare we have them lose their job mm. because we couldn't comply with mm-hmm. a couple regulations. Yeah. You know, so that, that that's one of the lessons. I, I like the, the some of the, the commercials that talk about my wearing a mask is not just helping me, but it's helping everybody who comes in contact with me. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what community is about? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it reinforces it that we are here to, to help each other. Mm-hmm. Not to hurt each other, not to harm each other on any level. And this is saying to us, not on a physical level even. Mm-hmm. You know, if my wearing a mask keeps somebody else from getting sick, that's what community is about. That's what, that's what living the Gospels is about. Yeah, there's an interconnectedness that exists between us. Sometimes that's being shown by a spreading of a virus. Right. But even when that's not happening or... You know, as people are taking precautions and that doesn't happen, it shows how we are connected. And and my decisions do have an impact on others. And and it's important to think about that as it relates to others. I think this contact tracing makes them see that more than anything. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if this person A ends up in quarantine or isolation, I can't keep straight, which is which. Yeah. (laughs) Then everybody else that's had real close contact with them has to go in isolation and quarantine as well. Yeah. And we're not individuals who don't have a responsibility to the people around us. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting. We talked about social media and the distractions and that can be, I think even prior to the pandemic, sometimes we could go about our day and we don't really think about the people we interact with or we're focused on ourselves or what the next post we're going to make or or whatever it is or what we're busy with for work. This is forcing people to think about how we're interacting with with people throughout the day or not uh, when when we have to be in isolation. So it's, it's making that that very real for a lot of us. Yeah. We've we've touched on building community. You've been a part of family, your religious community, all these different ministries and jobs that you've had. Obviously, for many years now, building the community here in McGlynn. What do you think are the important principles to building a, a very caring and loving community? When I was teaching eighth grade, and I loved them, 
I would always, every once in a while, when they would get on their high and mighty, <laughs> which was possible, I would always say to them, hmm, I am the great I am. There is no I am greater than I am. Hmm. I think community helps us to realize that's not true. Sometimes I'd say to them, the three most important people in the world, huh, are me, myself, and I? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's what community does. It helps us realize that, as my one sister-in-law taught her kids, none of us are the center of the universe. Hmm. None of us are in a position where everything revolves around us. And that's what community's about, realizing that, no. And the more selfless I am, and the more I think about the people that I interact with and I connect with and I work with or I socialize with, in many respects, the happier I am. Mm -hmm. You know, and this putting the whole focus on me is just not the way it is and not what we're called to. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I didn't want to lose this point about music because music was such an important thing to you at different parts of your life and your ministry. As you said, you were known as a, a music sister as you first got started. Right. Have you been able to stay connected to music over the years? And what do you think it is about music that helps us connect better to God? Actually, the last two years, I am the piano player at our Sunday Mass every night. <laughs> okay, great. I, I've been lucky up to this point to always have some outstanding student who could play really, really well. In the last two years, that has not happened. <laughs> so I am the one playing the piano. And the interesting thing this year was when we came back and first started, we were told we could have, we can't sing. All right, and I understand that. But then we were told we could have somebody sing the psalm. So the first couple Sundays, we had maybe the second or third, we started with somebody to sing the psalm. And then because the, the students here are, are wonderful at mass, the singing is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And they really participate. I started getting feedback how much they were missing it. Yeah. So now we play an entrance hymn. We play a communion hymn. We play a, a closing hymn. I always tease them that I'm working on developing an orchestra for mass. Uh, some Sundays we have uh, a violin, two violas, one or two flutes, and the piano. Wow. And I always tease that I need them to cover over my mistakes. <laughs> so I like it when there's a group. Last Sunday it was one violin player and me. You know, we were able to do a pretty good job. But I think, you know, there's that saying that uh, singing is praying twice. Mm-hmm. There's something about lifting your voice up to God in mass or any other prayer setting that's life-giving. And, and not just to the individual, but to the whole group. And it's wonderful here to... I, I miss it when I have to go back to Philadelphia for the summers. Mm -hmm. I miss mass here because it is so alive and so full of energy. Mm. It usually takes me, I always greet them at the beginning of Mass. It usually takes me at least three tries, sometimes four, to get their attention. <laughs> I've always said that I don't mind all that talking in the chapel before Mass because mm. they pour all of that energy into the singing and into the responses. Mm. And I miss that. Yeah. And I think they miss that. Even though we're playing music, we're not singing. 
Yeah, it's certainly been a change dynamic for a lot of us. I mean, even in the spring, not getting to go to mass That's right. for Easter, no less. I mean, that was right. so challenging. And now even the places where we've been able to go back to mass, it's still with us. You know, we still recognize that this isn't back to normal. Yeah. Where has mass taken place on Sundays? Has it been able to be in the chapel or have you been elsewhere? What we decided to do here, and it's been working well, we have mass in the chapel and we live stream it into our 24-hour lounge, as well as into their rooms. Okay. And then we encourage the ones who are in their rooms to come down to the chapel to receive communion. I see. And it's been going pretty well. This past Sunday, I think we're, we hit like a, a tough spot in the uh, academic year. Yeah. Was the sparsest group we okay. had in the 24-hour lounge. The uh-huh. chapel was pretty much full. Yeah. And I mean... Full as far as our capacity. With the social distancing, sure, yeah. yeah. And I think there were maybe only six or seven in the 24-hour lounge, which is usually 20-some. But we've had good response, very good response. We didn't want to move it out of the building. We wanted to keep it in our chapel. Mm -hmm. The students did, too. They wanted to keep it in our chapel and figure out what's the best way to do that. Yeah, it certainly caused us to be creative in a lot of ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. I do want to close, if we could, on what we normally do, asking about holiness. This call, this universal call to holiness that we all have. Who have been some of the people in your past, maybe in your present as well, who have been models for holiness to you? And what are some of the principles that you try to live by as a way of making a holy life? I guess I I would kind of start with my father. He was a physician, made the decision to practice medicine in our local parish area. At that time, a lot of the the doctors in the area moved the families to the suburbs and had offices in the city areas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We didn't. We lived in the the house where the office was. Part of that was my mother because she said she wasn't going to raise us alone. Yeah. All right. So between the two of them and just the orientation towards service, you know, that I saw from my parents. And then I really loved and admired my two aunts who were in our community. Mm -hmm. My mother's family had great relationships among all of her siblings. I think that helped. I've had some wonderful women that I looked up to in my congregation that continued that. And just being able to, you know see them and admire them. Uh, one sister who was in this, teaching in the same school with me in my early years was unbelievably crippled up with arthritis hmm. and went to school every single day and taught third grade and never, ever complained. Hmm. She was a wonderful person and just you couldn't not see holiness. You know, so I've had a great opportunity to know a lot of wonderful people wonderful women. The priest I told you at at North Carolina State, Uh Joe McNamara, we had a great relationship. He was a good, holy man. Definitely learned a lot from him about campus ministry, Mm -hmm. working with students and the way he worked with them and and connected with them. Um, He could be serious. He could be humorous. You know, it was a well-balanced relationship. And the, the interesting thing about him was that my successes were our successes. Hmm. His successes were our successes. There was no competition. 
no ego, you know, and we work together to for the best of the students at North Carolina State. And some of the people I've stayed the closest in touch with are from that ministry place. Yeah. I've stayed closer to them. In fact, I, I often go spring break to visit some of them that I still stay in touch with. Hmm. So folks like that have been really wonderful. Well, thank you. It, it, it does sound like, which isn't surprising, that you've had a lot of wonderful people. And then for you, how, how do you strive to live a holy life? What, what are some of the things that keep you on that path? I, I try to be faithful to that Micah passage. Yeah. Act justly, love tenderly, and walk humbly with your God. Uh, annual retreat, six to eight day director retreat has been part of my life for a long time except for this past year. <laughs> daily prayer, daily mass as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think just watching the interaction with students and how good they are with each other helps call me to a goodness as well mm-hmm. and, a, and a sense of holiness. Yeah. Well, Sister Mary, I... When I think of that verse, I think of you. You know, you really embody that. So thank you for sharing your story with us and encouraging us in so many ways. Thank you for your ongoing service. You've touched so many lives here in McGlynn and beyond. And I'm just really excited to share your story and introduce you to a broader audience. So thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for asking me. It was great. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. If you would like to be notified of future episodes of the podcast, you're welcome to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection, which is a, an email that will tell you about future episodes of the podcast. And you can do that at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. Until next time, you will be in our prayers. Thank you. <laughs>